Section 17 of Vagabond Adventures. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Vagabond Adventures by Ralph Keeler. Book Two. Three Years as a Negro Minstrel. Chapter Seven. On the Floating Palace. The day after the farewell benefit of Mitchell, I was engaged by Dr. Spaulding, the veteran manager, whose old quarrel with Dan Rice has made him famous to the lovers of the circus. He was then fitting out the floating palace for its voyage on the western and southern rivers. The floating palace was a great boat built expressly for show purposes. It was towed from place to place by a steamer called the James Raymond. The palace contained a museum with all the usual concomitants of invisible ladies, stuffed giraffes, puppet dancing, etc., etc. The Raymond contained, besides the dining-hall and state-rooms of the employees, a concert saloon fitted up with great elegance and convenience and called the Ridotto. In this latter I was engaged, in conjunction with a full band of minstrels, to do my jig and wench dances. The two boats left Cincinnati with nearly a hundred souls on board, that being the necessary complement of the vast establishment. We were bound for Pittsburgh, where we were to give our first exhibition, proposing to stop afterward, on our way down, at all the towns and landings along the Ohio. Everything went well on our way up the river, till we came within about twenty miles of Wheeling, Virginia, when the Raymond stuck fast on a sandbar. It was thought best for the people to be transferred to the palace, so as to lighten the steamer and let her work off. When, accordingly, we had all huddled into the museum, our lines were cast off and our anchor let go. But we were carried half a mile downstream before the anchor caught. Here, all day, from the decks of the palace, we could watch the futile efforts of the Raymond to get off the bar. The only provision for the inner man on board of our craft was a drinking saloon, which was of very little comfort to the numerous ladies of the party, to say the least. Toward night we became exceedingly hungry, but no relief was sent us from the steamer. One Risse, an obese bass-singer, who was a terrible gourmand, and who had been for the last five hours raving about the decks in a pitiable manner, rushed suddenly out upon the guard about eight o'clock, declaring that he saw a boatload of provisions coming from the Raymond. A shout of joy now went up from the famished people that shook the stuffed giraffes and waxworks in their glass cases. It was a boat indeed, but it contained simply the captain, mate, and pilot, who had come all that way after their evening bitters at the drinking saloon. They expressed themselves very sorry for us and were confident that they could now get the steamer off the bar. This liquid stimulus was all that had been needed from the first. With this mild assurance for a foundation to our hopes of relief, they took their departure and we waited on and on through the long night. Riese, the bass-singer, never slept a wink, or allowed many others to sleep, his hungry voice like a loon's on some solitary lake, breaking in upon the stillness where and when it was least expected, wrapped in the veritable cloak of the great Pacha Muhammad Ali. I drowsed through the latter part of the night, crouched down between the glass departments of the waxen tam o and the Twelve Apostles. In the morning there were several more steamers aground in the neighborhood, 
but no better prospect of the Raymond's getting clear. We were finally taken off to her in small boats and allowed to break our long fast. Instead of rising, the river fell, and we were left almost a week on dry land. Our provisions giving out, it was thought best for the performers to be taken up to Wheeling by a little stern-wheeler that happened to come along. At that city we gave several exhibitions in Washington Hall, proceeding thence down the river on the stern-wheeler to play at the towns along till we should be overtaken by the palace and the Raymond. We passed those unfortunate boats, still laboring to free themselves, and were greeted with hearty cheers by the people on board. One night the river rose suddenly, and in a day or so we were overtaken by the whole establishment at Marietta, Ohio. The proposed trip to Pittsburgh was abandoned. We commenced our voyage down the river, exhibiting in the afternoon and evening, and sometimes in the morning, at two and often three towns or landings in a day. It needed not this excess of its labors to tire me of the showman's life. Several months before I had begun to doubt whether a great negro minstrel was a more enviable man than a great senator or author. As these doubts grew on me, I purchased some school-books, and betook myself to study every day, devouring, in the intervals of arithmetic and grammar, the contents of every work of biography and poetry that I could lay hands on. The novelty and excitement of this odd life, indeed, were wearing away. All audiences at last looked alike to me, as all lecture-goers do to Dr. Holmes. They laughed at the same places in the performance, applauded at the same place, and looked inane or interested at the same place, day after day, week after week, and month after month. I became gradually indifferent to their applause, or only noticed when it failed at the usual step or pantomime. Then succeeded a sort of contempt for audiences, and at last a positive hatred of them and myself. I noticed, or thought I noticed, that their faces wore the same vacant expression whether their eyes were staring at me, or the stuffed giraffes, or the dancing puppets of the museum. Nevertheless the days and nights, too, on the palace were eventful ones. Some unexpected thing was always happening to the boats, or to the performers, or to the audiences. An occasional struggle with the town authorities would add spice to our life. What made these squabbles particularly interesting was that they never resulted twice alike. The one that caused us the most merriment, and consequently dwells best in my memory, occurred on the Ohio at West Columbia, Virginia. Certain authorities at that ambitious little town had agreed with our agent that our license should be the sum of two dollars and fifty cents, which was merely reasonable in those days so innocent of our later improvements in taxation, but when we had opened our doors to the vast multitude on the banks, certain others of the authorities became suddenly impressed with the idea that the agreement with the agent was based on too cheap a plan, and demanded twenty-five dollars, or the shows could not go on. Our managers strenuously refused, but offered at last to compromise rather than have any further trouble tendering twelve dollars and a half. The authorities persisted in their unreasonable demand, and said, with still greater flourish of constables, etc., that the shows should not go on. 
it was the work of about ten minutes to cast off the lines and float downstream a few rods just outside the limits of the corporation and the shows did go on without paying any license at all and to overflowing and sympathizing audiences shortly after at another little town in kentucky a runaway couple came into the museum bringing the squire with them and right in front of the glass case where a stuffed hyena and a hilarious alligator also stuffed exchanged perpetual smiles at each other which of course were intended by the taxidermist as looks of ferocity and while a barrel organ was playing a lively dance for the puppets this runaway young couple was married a brother of the lady arrived on the scene just too late to prevent the nuptials the only means of revenge he could think of was to get abominably drunk and raise a disturbance in the concert room that afternoon it must have been a memorable day with that particular family for the young gentleman was roundly whipped for his share in the wedding ceremonies the row however became general that was the momentous occasion when governor door entering the arena by a side door announced with some emphasis that he wanted it understood he had something to say in that fight he was standing on a seat by the door when he commenced this speech it was never ended at least to his satisfaction he had just begun his exordium as reported when some stalwart kentuckian knocked him clear through the door with remarkable presence of mind the governor picked up his hat as if he had merely happened to drop it on the guard of the boat and walked quietly off to his stateroom leaving the regular ushers to restore order if i had not before mentioned door's presence on the palace it has been because i have been trying to explain in my puzzled memory how he came there and what was the line of his duties i should have put him down at once as the literary gentleman of the establishment were it not for the fact that we had another who manifestly filled that office i allude to the gentleman who edited the daily paper which was printed in the museum and distributed gratuitously to its patrons this man was the founder and for a long time the editor of one of the best known and most influential journals now published in the union the wreck of a fine scholar and a graphic writer who had been the associate of some of the highest and best of our land it was a melancholy sight to see him industriously printing his little paper before the stolid curious people who thronged about his stand at the same stand gingerbread and brilliant colored candies and lemonade were dispensed pale red lemonade which seemed as one might say continually beholding its maker and only half succeeding in its attempt to blush poor old fellow the labor of his hands and brain was as i have remarked distributed gratuitously the lemonade was sold for five cents a glass this thought if it ever occurred to him could have had little force for his philosophy taught him to accept every situation unmurmuringly he had but one argument to establish his theory of fate and he was never weary of repeating it when any passing philanthropist would grapple with him and endeavor to show him that he ought to be very miserable he would tell this story there was a man he would say at work on a scaffold of a four-story building in cincinnati the scaffolding gave way and he fell those four stories and one besides down into the cellar 
Fifteen minutes thereafter he was up again, uninjured at his work. A week afterward he was walking in front of Alf Burnett's saloon, stepped on a watermelon rind, fell, broke his neck, and died instantly. The narrator would never vouchsafe any explanation. When his hearer, making an application for himself, would accuse our philosopher of fatalism, he would only smile good-naturedly and go about his duties. It must indeed have been a dull penetration that could see nothing better in the old fellow's story, especially under the everyday commentary of his uncomplaining life, and I am glad to say others put this larger interpretation upon him and his philosophy, that his own misfortunes had taught him more than his story, the ways of God are inscrutable, and that he is all in all, and that, high or low, successful or broken, we are all alike in his merciful hands. Scarcely three years ago I saw my old friend for the last time. We met in the street at San Francisco where he then lived, and where he has since died. How well he was known and loved there was in some measure attested by the honorable manner of his burial. There are few printers, at least in the metropolis of the Pacific, who will not remember him, although they may have known nothing more of his personal history than that he was the veteran attaché of Calhoun's job-rooms. Whatever the straits to which his peculiar misfortune brought him, he never lost that indescribable dignity and courtesy which were a part of his heritage as a born gentleman. Poor old John McCreary! He would have written a better obituary of me than this, and published it in his palace journal, if I had chanced to get knocked on the head in some of the riots and perilous fights which we witnessed together at those lawless backwoods landings. And this brings me back again to Governor Dorr, who was sore in the face, and more especially in the feelings, for some time after his disastrous attempt to reason with the excited spirits of that Kentucky audience, he could not bear with any degree of equanimity the slightest allusion to the day of the marriage in the museum. I cannot remember exactly when the governor left the palace, or why, as he was, I have already intimated, ever one of the company. I lean to the opinion that the manager, or his right-hand man, the once famous Van Orden of Dan Rice's satirical song, kept him on board to be amused by his conversation. Except this amusing conversation, and a commendable regularity at meals, I can think of no activity whatever on the part of the governor while with us, save only that he did two things. The first was to get knocked through the door of the concert-room, as before mentioned, and the second was to write up for our daily newspaper, the Palace Journal, a most brilliant account of the curiosities in the museum. The picturesque joy with which, in that series of articles, he would pursue the history of some bogus war-club through the hands and over the heads of whole dynasties of savage kings, the sunny sea-voyages upon which he would send his adventurous rhetoric to far tropic islands after some insignificant shell which, perhaps, was in reality captured in the neighborhood of Long Branch, the fearful and bloody deeds of midnight assassins that he would group about some old rusty sheath-knife, which was curious only because it had been rusted to order by chemicals, 
and then the melting tenderness in which his soul would go out in the heart history of our wax figures especially of that stolid blue-eyed lady in excessive black lashes and pink cheeks who had been bought with an odd lot from an old collection at albany and attired in cheap gauze and labeled the empress josephine these delightful arabesques of invention and sentiment and in a word any of the governor's fine literary pyrotechnics may not be reproduced they have gone down with the last files of the palace journal who shall say in what western lethe and yet i have the bad taste to own that for my own reading i would rather come across that series of descriptive articles now than upon the lost books of livy the governor fairly reveled in his work indeed my last memory of him is as i saw him with his lead pencil in his hand and indefinite foolscap before him sprawled out upon his stomach on the floor of the museum one forenoon when there was no exhibition he was staring in a fine frenzy straight into the distended mouth and merry glass eyes of our stuffed alligator in the act no doubt was the ecstatic governor of inventing and composing details of the heart-rending tragedy of the last man swallowed by the smiling convivial saurian before him and there i shall leave him end of chapter seven on the floating palace